Before we dive, well, turn to 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 16 through 21. We're going to complete 1 John, and we'll jump into 2 John next Sunday, okay? All right, so we're now in chapter 5, 16 through 21, going to complete the chapter and the, the, the first epistle of John. We're now in part 16 of our series, Authentic. Say Authentic. And before we even dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was verses 13 uh, through 15. I give you five points from that text. And the first one, quickly here, was our association. Say that. Our association, that's in verse 13a, and John is identifying who he's writing to, and he's writing to believers, say believers, those of us who are connected to Christ, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are born of God. The second point was our assurance, say that, and that's in verse 13b, and John says, so that, and here's the purpose for which it was written, you, speaking of believers, may know, stresses a full assurance and present certainty that you have, say, I have. It means to lay hold of something, hold something fast in the grip of your hand that you lay hold of what? He says eternal life. It doesn't say that we will have eternal life, rather that we have eternal life. It's in the present tense. In other words, right now, we believers have eternal life. The present tense in the Greek, what it does, it indicates that Christians continually possess eternal life. Good place to say Amen. The third point was our access. Say that. Our access, verse 14a. And because we know, because of the certainty of our salvation, the certainty of our eternal life, we as believers can draw near to God. And we can, this is now, go before God with confidence and present our petitions before Him. The fourth point was our appeal. Say that. Our appeal, verse 14b. And John says that if we ask anything, say anything, in other words, whether it's spiritual, physical, personal, relational, whether it's financial, vocational, whether it's big or small, we can ask anything. But what's the qualifier? John says, according to his will. Amen. He hears us. And the fourth, excuse me, the fifth point was our accommodation. Say that. Our accommodation, verse 15. And John says, if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask, in context, what? According to his what? Will. We know that we have what we ask of him. So we have confidence, right? We have confidence that God will supply our needs when we pray according to his will for our lives. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message today is Praying and Knowing. Say that. Three points from today's text, if you're ready, say yes. Number one is this, our concern. Write it down and say that. Our concern. Write that down. Our concern. Now, you will notice that John, what he does, he continues to stay on the thought of prayer. Say prayer. And these next two verses are tied directly to the previous verses. And John continues to speak of prayer in the lives of believers. It's a concerned prayer. A concerned prayer. Let's look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother or sister, speaking of a fellow believer, say fellow believer, Commit a sin that does not lead to death. He should pray and God will give him or her life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. And I want to stop there because there's, there's a lot to unpack here. The text makes it very clear that John is addressing believers, right? I mean, it's clear. Believers. Uh, if anyone sees his brother or sister. Now, if you're saved, say amen. 
Now, now we are all, as believers, we are all aware that, that though we are saved, we still commit sin. Right? We're saved, but we're saved sinners. And as long as we live in this, this fleshly body of ours, we will be prone to sin and failure in regard to God's holy standard. Now, walking close to God, right, and having fellowship with God reduces our tendency to sin, right? But the fact remains that we all still sin. So here in the text, John speaks of seeing a brother or a sister uh, sin, a sin that does not lead to death, and the responsibility uh, that we have to pray for that brother or sister. To go back to the text. If anyone sees his brother or sister, a fellow believer, I want to make sure we understand that, a fellow believer, commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray that God give him or her what? Life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Now, let me tell you what John is not saying here. Okay? John is not saying if we see a brother or sister sinning, one who has fallen into sin, to go tell the pastor so the pastor could deal with it. Nor does John say if we see a brother or sister sinning to call or text or email your friends to tell them about it so you can all pray. Nor does John say we see a brother or sister sinning to point our finger at them and shake our heads in disgust and say how in God's name could they do, could they do that. He's not saying that. Go back to the text. If anyone sees, sees his brother, sister commit a sin. Notice the word sees. Say sees. That's important. You see, John is making it very clear that this isn't secondhand knowledge. You guys with me? Okay. This isn't hearsay. This isn't slander or gossip that has been circulated. This is firsthand knowledge. You, as a believer, see another believer commit a sin. And John says that when we do, when we see a brother or sister engaging in some sinful activity, one who's fallen into sin to what? To pray for them. So the first thing we need to do, our, our first response is to what? Pray for them. It's our responsibility, friends, to pray for them, to take it to God in prayer, to intercede for them, cry out to God on their behalf. And that we would pray that God would convict them, right? Convict them of their sin and correct them. That God would open their eyes to see the error of their way. Pray that they would repent and disentangle, and this is now, and be disentangled from their sin and be restored to fellowship with God. Listen, we're not instructed to make the community know of their sin, okay? We're not instructed to publicly condemn them. We're instructed to what? Come on, pray for them and desire their restoration. Are you guys with me? Let's go back to the text. He should pray that God will give him life or her life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. When he says praying God, give, praying God will give him or her life, this is not referring to eternal life, okay? It's not referring to eternal life. Why? Because believers already have what? Eternal life, right? So when John says, pray God will give him or her life, he's referring to all the fullness of abundant life. That, that God would restore the fullness of joy and the fullness of peace and, and, and vitality in the believer's life. That the believer would be restored back to communion and to fellowship with God. That's what it means that God will give him or her life. 
restoring that back to them, the peace and joy and vitality. And John makes it clear that this is the prayer that God so desires to answer. Can I get an amen? Now, you're saying to yourself, well, what if they don't repent? What if our prayers don't prevail? Well, we then do what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. Write that down, Galatians 6.1. And Paul says, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, he's talking about believers. If a believer is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, okay, should restore that person gently. Say gently. It's a key word, okay? But watch yourselves or you also may be, what, tempted. We are to go to them gently. And gently in love, restore them. Gently in love, restore them to godliness and holiness. And I want to I point out that here the word uh, restore literally speaks of setting a broken bone. Setting a broken bone. It isn't amputated and thrown away, okay? But it's set. Say it's set. So that it can mend, get this now, and become useful again. Got that? So we are to gently, listen now, believers, when we see a believer in sin, caught in sin, we are gently to pick them up, hold them up, and build them up. Say, pick them up, hold them up, and build them up. That's a sermon in itself, right? Okay, so here's a lesson. Ready for the lesson? Pray for one another. What we just covered, listen, Christians, what we just covered in the text should be a strong motivation to us to pray for one another. It's a concern prayer, right? For one another. If I have a concern for you and I see you engaging in some sin, I'm going to pray for you. Can, can, can someone please say amen? Okay, so now let's, let's read on. There is a sin. This is what he says. That leads to death. Did you get that? There is a sin that leads to death. I want to stop to remember context. Say context. Is important, right? And I want you to follow me here in verse 11 of chapter 5. Verse 11. John says, and this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Who's his son? Jesus Christ. Verse 13, chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. That's a full assurance, a present certainty that you have. We covered this in our, right, in our introduction, right, going back to last week's message, that you lay hold of what? Eternal life. So the believer's eternal life is set. It's secured, right? So in context, there is a sin that leads to death is not referring to eternal death. It's not referring to spiritual death. If you got it, say got it. Listen, the fact that John is talking about a believer means he's not talking about eternal death. He's not talking about spiritual death. Now, now if you're saved, say amen. As believers... We're not going to die spiritually because we've fallen into sin. We're saved by grace, right? Through what? Faith. If we would die spiritually after getting saved because we fell into sin, then that would mean that we're saved by faith and kept by works. If that were true, then that means that we would have to hold on to good works and not sin 
and that our salvation would be void. Question, was it your goodness that got you saved? Was it your goodness that got you saved? No. Then how could your lack of goodness get you unsaved? You guys with me? Now, are there times when a believer doesn't repent, doesn't disentangle themselves from their sin? The answer is yes. Absolutely, yes. And in that situation, God has his ways of what? Disentangling them. What he does, he disciplines them. He chastises them. And, that's it now, sometimes God brings death. You guys with me? Physical death. And this is exactly what John is driving at when he says there is a sin that leads to death. And this involves those who are true believers, genuine born, genuinely born of God, right, living in unrepented sin. And you see, it is possible as a believer to cross the line with sin and fill an early grave. That they're living in disobedient, in a disobedient state before God, and it brings disgrace to God's name. That what God does, God judges that sin with physical death. And they have sin, they have sin, they have, excuse me, in, in, in some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should just come home to God. And, and we know this can happen. Why? Because the Bible confirms this. In fact, John, the one who wrote this, the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John, witnessed believers dropping dead. Are you guys with me? He understood that there was a sin that leads to physical death. And to prove my point, Ananias and Sapphira. You guys with me? In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, believers, believers who both lied to God and were struck dead. How about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30? Some believers in Corinth died because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So the most extreme discipline that God can bring to a believer is what? Physical death, not eternal death, not spiritual death, but physical death. The believer saved, say, say the believer saved, but his or her reward in heaven will be little. So it's possible to engage in unrepentant sin for so long that God calls a believer home through a premature death. And when one has crossed the line with God, there's no need to pray for a different outcome. There's a sin that leads to death. This is what John says. There's a sin that leads to death. And he says this, I am not saying that he should pray about that. Listen, church, there's a limit to God's tolerance of sin in our lives. You guys with me? Verse 17, all wrongdoing is what? All wrongdoing, all unrighteousness is sin. This reveals a stern warning regarding sin. Anything that you and I engage in, whether it's in thought, word, attitude, or whether it's indeed contrary to God and his righteousness, is sin. Because God is not pleased with sin. God cannot condone sin or have fellowship with sin at all. He, God, listen now, will never wink at sin. God, he'll never wink at sin or overlook sin. He sent his one and only begotten son to die for our sins, right? So as believers, it's dangerous to dabble in sin. Then he says this, and there is 
sin that does not lead to death. So John, what he does, he recognizes that not every sin leads to death in the matter that he speaks of and speaking of physical death, though all, he says, wrongdoing, all unrighteousness is what? Sin. Now, if you're safe, say amen. This text is pretty sobering, isn't it? Think about what John wrote, right? As believers, we must seek to live upright, listen now, before God, avoiding sin at all costs. Now, 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 though we are obligated, as the text says, to pray for other fellow believers who have stumbled and fallen into sin, we must look at our own lives and see if there's any sin in our lives. Huh? That needs to be confessed. And if there is, then we need to confess it. If we're out there, you know, praying for someone who's sinning and yet we're caught in sin, doesn't make sense, right? And we should pray, right, and confess our sins. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 John. We learned this right in this series, right? He says this, if we confess our sins, confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Great place to say amen. Thank you. Say amen. Amen. So that's our concern. And John laid it out. Amen. Number two is this, our confidence. Say that. Our confidence. Write that down. And we look at verse 18. Verse 18. We know. Say, we know. Present tense means we know this today. We know this tomorrow. We know this the next day. And the day after that day, we know this every day. We always know this. Know what? That anyone born of God speaking of a believer, does not continue to sin. Stop there. This speaks of a habitual, continual lifestyle of sin. Talking about practicing and pursuing and living and swimming in sin. Day in and day out. In other words, an unbroken sequence of sin. Now, if you're safe, say amen. We no longer enjoy sin, right? We shouldn't, right? or purposely pursue an opportunity to sin. Why? Because the new birth, say the new birth, changes that. We know that the new birth, we know that being born of God changes us. It changes the mind, it changes the heart, it changes the will, it changes the entirety of who you and I are. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we know this, right? Therefore, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, say in Christ, he or she is a new what? Creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have what? Come. So this is the confidence. Say confidence. Our confidence, the assurance of our conversion of transformation. We're being transformed. Amen. Let's read on. The one, that should be a capital O, who was born of God. It should go like this. The begotten of God, speaking of the virgin-born Son of God, Jesus Christ. Keeps him, him, referring to the believer. So Jesus Christ keeps the believer safe. Say safe. And the evil one, the devil, Satan, don't matter what you call him, he's evil, amen, cannot harm him, cannot harm the believer. The key James says this, the wicked one cannot touch him. Now the word touch there in the text has the idea of to attach oneself to to attach oneself to, to hold on to and grasp. In essence, what John 
is clearly saying here is that the wicked one, the evil one, the devil, Satan, cannot attach or even his demons attach themselves to the believer. Good place to say amen. So, so are you ready? Here's a lesson. If you're saved, we can say this, we're protected. Say, I'm protected. Okay? Amen? Now, that's not to say that we will never be tempted, okay, or face trials and, and adversity brought about by the devil. Listen, as believers, we're in spiritual warfare. You're in a battle, man. Amen? We're in a spiritual warfare, so the enemy is going to attack us from time to time. Now, he can attack us. He can oppress us. He can harass us, but he cannot cling to us. The text is saying he cannot lay hold of us. He cannot dominate us, cannot possess us, and cannot pull us down to hell along with him. He cannot, listen, he cannot have dominion over our lives. Therefore, his attempts to lure us away will be ineffective. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, right, guards, protects, and keeps us safe from the evil one. And this is the confidence of our conversion. This is the confidence of our eternal security. Not because of us, but because of Christ. Amen? We know this. Say, we know this. And we need to know this if we as believers expect to live a victorious Christian life. Amen? Verse 19. We know, there it is again, present tense, we know this today, tomorrow, the next day, day after that day, we know this every day. We always know this. Know what? That there are children, that we are what? That we are what? Children of God. I want to stop there. We know that we are, in fact, children of God, that we belong to God, that we are his possessions, right? That, 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 that we are his children, that we are his sheep, right? So, so there are those of us who are of God, believers, right? We just stated that. But notice the contrast, let's read on, in that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you guys get that? So I want to point out that the whole world, say the whole world, in context doesn't mean everyone in the world because believers are in the world, right? Got it? The whole world here in the text is referring to those who are lost, to those who are not saved, uh, to those who are captive, to those who are under the control of this world system that is headed and guided and influenced by the devil. You guys got it? So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? There are only two categories. That's the lesson. There are only two categories. Again, there are those who are of God, right? And those who are of the world. Now notice there's not a third category. <laughs> You guys got it? There's no third option. There's no middle ground. You're either, you either belong to God, right, to God, or you belong to the world and the power of the evil one. Only two categories, only two camps. Go question, which one do you belong to? To the Lord, to God himself, or to this world and the evil one? Hmm? If you're safe, say amen. Because we are, we know this, right? We know this. We know this. That's why I called it praying and knowing. 
We know this because we, this is how, because we are children of God, because we belong to him, we are not under the control, under the sway of the evil one and this world system. We know this. Amen? Let's go back, and I want to read verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, chapter 5. Let's go back and read that. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Present tense, which means consistently overcomes. It's an ongoing habitual lifestyle. Okay, this is now, uh, this now in other words, marks the course of our lives as believers. We're, we're overcomers. We live triumphantly over the world. This is a victory, goes on to say, that has what? Overcome the world, even our what? Faith. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? John clearly defines who the overcomer is. Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the confidence of our conversion. That's the confidence of our eternal security. We know this. Say that. We know this. Verse 20. We know, there it is again. You can't get away from that, right? Present tense, we know this today, tomorrow, the next day, the day after that day. We know this every day. We always know this. Know what? We know also that the Son of God has come. Referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 2, you guys remember this, right? Chapter 4, verse 2, John noted the importance of accepting Jesus as coming in the what? The flesh. Now remember, the Gnostics, okay, because John was refuting these false teachers, and right? These false teachers, heretics, right? The Gnostics didn't believe in the incarnation of Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus had a real human body. They believed that Jesus was a phantom. So this is why John says this, okay? And so John, what he's saying is this. In essence, John is saying they don't know. The Gnostics, false teachers, the heretics, they don't know, okay? But we do. We know. Say, we know. We know that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He had a real body. He had a real body that was nailed to the cross, real blood that was poured out of his body for our sins, and his body was laid in the tomb, and he was raised from the dead in his body. Amen? And he says this, and has given us understanding. Here's the understanding. So that we may know him who is true. Him who is what? True, authentic, real, genuine. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read to you the NLT, the New Living Translation, how that goes. We live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, he says this, back to the text. He is the true God. Say, he is the true God. In the Greek, it's this one. It's, the, it's called antecedent, means the previous being Jesus Christ. So it would read like this. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. You guys got it? And this, what this does, and I love this, this speaks of the deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is God. Say that. He is the true living God. And the Gnostics didn't believe in the humanity. They didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. But John's saying, we do. You guys with me? We know that Jesus came in flesh, fully human. We know that Jesus is, in fact, fully God. We know this. You're safe, say amen. 
we know the true God, and this true God is the Son of God. That's our confidence. That's our confidence in our conversion. We know this. Amen? Say our concern. Say our confidence. Number three, we're almost done here. Our challenge. Say that. Our challenge. Write that down. Verse 21. You guys ready? We're going to finish this uh, first epistle. Dear children, that's a term of endearment. It implies you're in the family. And John's saying if you're a believer, you're in the family. You're in the familia. Okay? Dear children, believers, family, family of God, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems kind of strange, right? A strange way for John to end this letter. But, but remember, throughout his epistle, what did he do? He spent much of his time warning us against the dangers of false doctrine, of heresies, and antichrist. Remember that? So first and foremost, in context, say in context, an idol is embracing a false god. A false idea of a true God. An idol in context is anything or anyone who is not the true God. And what John is simply telling us is keep, guard ourselves from these heresies. To guard ourselves from these lies and these false teachers and their false teaching. And secondly, this implies an idol is anything that replaces our devotion to God. It's anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God. It's anything, listen now, we love more than God and serve more than God. Ooh. Give me a job. Right? Your career. It could be a business, your business. It could be your money. Listen, it could be your family. It could be a relationship. It could be a house. It could be a sports team. <laughs> huh? It could be your car. It could be an iPhone. It could be Netflix. Yeah? It could be a hobby. Listen now, it could even be ministry. It could be education. It could be a pleasure and a pursuit. How about this one? How about this one? It could even be ourselves. By overindulgence in food and in drink, by laziness, or by too much concern about how we look and what we wear. Hmm? It's anything that pulls us away from supreme love and passion for God. It's anything that becomes more important than loving God. Now, please hear me, okay? This doesn't mean that we cannot have or enjoy certain things, okay? We just need to make sure that those things don't become our worship center. Don't become the chief object of our affections. So you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Simple. Guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. Amen? 
And what John's closing words does, it reminds us to put God at the forefront of our lives, to put God at the very center of our lives. He's telling us that our greatest temptation will be to take, will be to take our eyes off of God. Listen, we need to guard our hearts. We need to not allow anything or anyone to drive a wedge into our hearts and separate our affection that we have for God. Amen? Now, if you're safe, say amen. There are some things in our lives that if we're not careful, could easily take our focus off of God. And perhaps, just perhaps, there are things right now that are distracting us from giving our full 100% devotion to God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 speaks of the seven churches. And we covered this when I did the book of Revelation. God said to the church of Ephesus, you have forsaken, okay, not lost, but forsaken your first love. Tells the church straight up, you have forsaken, not lost, but you have forsaken your first love. Huh? Question. Is there anything in your life that is keeping, in our lives, that is keeping us away from our first love? Hmm? Is there anything that is robbing our heart's devotion to God? And I think it would be right and well to do a healthy assessment on that today. Is there anything that I'm putting before God? Is there anything that I'm worshiping before God? Is there anything that I have an affection for more than God? And if there is, I need to change that and put God first. We need, if you're safe, say amen. We need to guard our hearts. Amen. Let's all stand. Father, we we thank you for your word and for all that we've learned from your word this morning.